If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 21st chapter of the book of Isaiah as we continue our study through the Word. So you will remember that there have been these proclamations. Isaiah has been given these visions. He has been given this word to speak. And, <coughs> and so he has been declaring it. And, and you will remember that there was the, the proclamation against Egypt and against uh, Ethiopia. And, and now as we come to this 21st chapter where we are now, we are going to see that the fall of Babylon is going to be proclaimed. Now, you remember that when he's writing this, that Assyria is on the rise. Babylon isn't even in the picture yet. And yet the Lord is going to prophetically have him move to declare the judgment that is going to come upon Babylon. And so we see it begins in verse 1, and it says, The burden against the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the south pass and through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. Now, Babylon here is described as the burden against the wilderness of the sea. Now, Babylon, modern-day Iraq, we see is located between the Tigris and the Euphrates, and, and there are all types of canals and sluices and marshes, and, and so kind of a desert of the sea. And, and it says that when they come, they are going to come swiftly. It says, as whirlwinds in the south pass through. Now, this is the area down in the Negev Desert. And one of the things is that this suddenness, which the storms come and sweep through out of the, the desert, we see that the Negev is the place of united rebellion, really, uh, against the Tower of Babel. It was uh, there, you'll remember, that man joined together to build the ziggurat and to become independent uh, from God and shook their fists uh, at God. And, and you'll remember that it was there in the Tower of Babel where the languages were confused and where the nations were born. The people gathered together by the language suddenly that, that they could speak. And then they migrated into those groups. And, and so the nations uh, of the earth, this all after the flood and after Noah and the repopulation of the earth. And, and so we are back to the, the area now known as Babylon. And, and we see it says from a terrible uh, land and terrible speaking of their, their pension for war, their strength. And, and so this is a, a reference now to the uh, fall of Babylon that is going to take place by the Persians. Now, Persia is modern-day Iran, and so uh, Iran, the Medo-Persians, uh, are the ones that are going to ultimately conquer the Babylonians. And in verse 2, it says, A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media, all its sighing I have made to cease. So a distressing vision is declared to me. The, the vision that Isaiah was given was a, a sad one. He didn't want to give it because it was so terrible, but he has to give the message. The prophet isn't in control of the message that, uh, that he delivers. He is just simply a messenger. And so, but he is here declaring that, that this is a message that, that he did not delight in uh, himself. We see that it talks about the fact that go up, O Elam. Now, Elam, the Elamites and the Medes were part of the Persian army that ends up defeating the, the Babylonians. And, uh, and so, verse 3, Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. And so as Isaiah begins to describe the vision, here we see his, 
the visceral response that he's having to the very vision that God is given to him. He says the prophecy that he was about uh, to, to utter because of it, he was in, in pain like a, a woman that was in labor. His heart is beating fast. He is frightened and bowed down with the hearing of it. And, and he was dismayed at the seeing of it. And, and so this is the heart of God revealed here, desiring to show mercy and to loathe, to judge even so frightful a, a foe. God wills that none should perish, amen? God doesn't delight in, in destruction. We see that God is gracious and kind and he is long-suffering, but he is also a God of boundaries that says this far and no farther. And his grace extends this far and then no farther and judgment comes. But God doesn't delight in the judgment. And here we see that there is going to be judgment. But as Isaiah is looking at it, his heart is moved. His heart is stewarded. And, and it says in verse 4, my heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. Prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower. Eat and drink. Arise, you princes. Anoint the shield. And so here we see this in description. <coughs> Prepare the table. He describes the, what he is seeing, the, the revelry, the eating, the drinking, the, the banqueting. But in the midst of it, there comes a cry from the watchman to arise, you princes, and anoint the shield. This is a, a reference back to the feast that Belshazzar gives. You remember that the Babylonians uh, there, the, the, their palace, their stronghold, the walls around the, the city of, uh, of Babylon were so wide that they used to race chariots on top of them. This is how thick they were, how wide they were. They were considered to be absolutely impregnable that there would be no way that anybody could ever come in and, and take Babylon. So when the Medo-Persians come, when Cyrus comes, and, and they now lay siege, the, the army forms around the, uh, the walls of uh, Babylon, the Babylonians were like, we don't care. They can stay out there all they want. We, we are comfortable up here and, and we have got our walls to protect us. And, and so there was a complete disregard. And you'll <coughs> remember that, that Belshazzar calls for a great feast. And so while this city is being besieged, Belshazzar now decides to call a, a feast for all the nobles, for all the royals, to, to show them how much that they disdain the, the attempt upon their city, how futile it was, the, the utter arrogance and pride. Uh, now, we see that it was during that feast, you'll remember that mm, Belshazzar calls for the, uh, the, the instruments and, and the temple gold and silver that had been taken from Jerusalem to, to bring it out, that, that they could now drink uh, from the uh, holy ware that they had taken from Jerusalem. And, and you'll remember that in the middle of the feast, there is the, the hand that now writes on the wall, many, many, tekel you farsum. You have been found, you have been weighed in the scales and have been found wanting. And so the handwriting of judgment. While the feast was going on, Cyrus and his troops had diverted the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River flowed right whence the wall into the, the city of Babylon and down deep into the river uh, is uh, where they had cut their canal, their, their tunnel up uh, into their city to bring their water supply from the river under their wall and then up uh, into the city. When they diverted the water, there's just a big, huge uh, opening now and 
and Cyrus marches uh, some troops uh, in. They go and unlock the, uh, the city gates, and, and Cyrus's army comes in uncontested and completely takes and destroys uh, Babylon. They were feasting and trusting in themselves, arrogant and, and prideful, and, and then they went and dared to take and to lay hold of the holy things that are separated unto God. Do not lay hand on my anointed and do no harm to those whom God has placed his hand upon. The holiness of God and to contend with the holiness of God is a serious matter. And though Babylon had been used uh, by God as an instrument of judgment against the nation of Israel, he used them as an instrument to correct them and to bring discipline to them. He still ultimately would judge them for their sin, even though he had used them for uh, his purposes. For thus has the Lord said to me, verse 6, Go set a watchman. Let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. And then he cried, a lion, my Lord. Now, the Elamites used to use donkeys in battle. They didn't pull chariots, but they would ride upon them. And, and the Medes, they used camels and rode on camels. And so they were the the cavalry units uh, here. We see uh, a lion is probably the traditional cry of alarm that a shepherd would cry out when he was watching over the, the flock when there was danger, a, a lion, and that was the most dangerous threat to the flock. And so probably just a traditional cry of danger, a lion, my Lord, a phrase, in verse 8, it continues, I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. And I have sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods he is broken to the ground. The watchman looks day after day until finally someone comes with the message that Babylon has fallen and its gods now lay shattered and on the ground. Isaiah's prediction looked forward not only to the physical destruction of Babylon, but also you'll remember in the book of Revelation, if you happen to study that any time in the future. <laughs> How in chapter 14, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And then we see how chapters 17 and 18 are a parenthetical, deeper exegesis of the two Babylons, the, the religious system that is representative of the harlot that rides the beast, personified by her, the one world religious system. And then there is the commercial enterprise that is uh, represented by the city of Babylon. And, and so we see the destruction now that Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And so we see ultimately the judgment uh, upon the two Babylons uh, here. And so the two fulfillments, the one that is the local physical fulfillment and then the future fulfillment that will happen at the end of the tribulation period and halfway through the tribulation. In verse 10, and Oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. And oh, my threshing in the grain of my floor. So he's speaking about a harvest time when you would take the grain in and then you would bring it in and mill it. And so it would be threshed and the husk would be crushed away from the grain itself. And then the chaff and the, and the meal would be separated. And, and so here it is. It's harvest time. The threshing in the grain is still on the floor. It hasn't been separated yet. And so harvest speaks of a time of judgment. 
You remember the, the teaching that Jesus gave, the parable of the tares and the, and the wheat, and how the, the two were sown in together. And, and the question was, should we go and pull the tares uh, out? Someone has sown these tares in with the wheat. We, we see that the, it is talking about the way that there are believers and non-believers. And, and God, are you just going to judge the non-believers right now and, and pull them out from... But from the wheat, look at the, the tares are in with the wheat. And you remember they said, no, we, we will let the, the field ripen. And then at the harvest time, we will separate them at the, at the harvest time. We see that God is compassionate and he is long suffering and kind and merciful. And his desire is that none should perish and that every single person should come to know him and that every single person should continue to deepen in their intimacy and communion and fellowship all the days of their life. And then ultimately there will be the consummation when we will know him as we are known by him. To ponder on that. To know God the way that he knows us. The Bible tells us that he has the very hairs of our head number. That's an intimate knowledge. <laughs> Imagine being able to know God at that type of depth. Imagine knowing somebody else at that type of depth of intimacy and knowledge. He knows our thoughts. He knows our risings up and our lyings down. And, and we are going to know God. We are going to be connected <coughs> to him in a way that, that we can't even fathom right now. Unhindered by sin. We will have a, a perfect union, a perfect connection. The connection that Adam and Eve enjoyed there in, in the garden. How blessed uh, their fellowship and communion with God was before they were cast out, before sin interrupted that communion and fellowship. But Jesus Christ came to restore that back to us. And that we will one day again depart from these bodies, have a glorified body. Sin will be judged. It will be gone. Evil will be separated finally. The, the separation of the wheat and the tares is heaven and hell. That, and that there will now be at the end a separation that will take place. And, and no longer will we need to contend with unrighteousness and injustice and evil and sin and temptation even in our own life. We will be free from that. Free to enjoy just the communion and the fellowship and the intimacy and the love of God. Immersed in that love. How glorious that is going to be. But here in verse 10, my threshing and grain is on my floor. It is the time of judgment. And he's speaking about the vision now of the fall of Babylon. Isaiah here reiterates now that the God of Israel, uh, I have declared to you that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, I have declared to you. <coughs> Isaiah reiterates that his message is from God. He's only telling you what he had been told him, himself. And so the proclamation against Babylon, the prophecy of the fall of Babylon. In verse 11, the burden against uh, Duma. He calls to me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And the watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return and come back. Duma is Edom. And so this is a, a proclamation now against uh, Edom. Now, they would not allow God's people passage into the promised land. The, the Edomites uh, now are the descendants of Esau. And you remember that uh, Esau was a man of the flesh. And so we see the flesh and the spirit in opposition, the, the spirit of God leading the children of Israel, trying to bring them into the promised land. And we see the flesh wanting no part of assisting in any way, shape, or form. And and how true it is in our 
own lives as well, our spirit desires intimacy and peace and communion and fellowship with God, but our flesh wants no part of it. Our flesh wants no part of anything that is spiritual. When you decide that you're going to pray, your flesh just groans. Oh my gosh, you're going to groan. You know, I would think I'm going to go to church today. Your spirit's excited. Your flesh is like, I'm too tired. Come on. I, I worked all day. Are you kidding? It's communion. Oh, come on. Let's have communion with the television. <laughs> <laughs> the flesh just desires anything but the things that are spiritual in our lives, in my life, in your life. And, and here we see that, that the Edomites, they are a typology of the, of the flesh. And so they oppose the children of Israel. And, and here we see that there is now the judgment that is on the, the Edomites. This brief oracle is against Edom because of the reference to Seir. And Seir is the... Uh, is the mountains of Seir, and they were given as a possession to Esau and to his descendants here. And, and so after the fall of Babylon, the Medo-Persian troops came down, and ultimately they took over the whole area that was given over to the Edomites. And verse 13 is a proclamation now against Arabia, the burden against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia you will lodge, O you traveling companies of Dedanites. So the burden upon Arabia refers to the Arabian tribes of the desert that is now beyond uh, Edom. And, uh, and so Dedan is the area that would be considered Saudi Arabia. Now, in Ezekiel 38, we see that the Russian invasion of the Middle East, we find Sheba and Dedan, and we find Arabia are objecting to Russia's move into the Middle East. And so we see this area highly contested, the, the Middle East, highly contested even to this day right now. In verse 14, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. Bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. So Tima was a well-known oasis in northwestern Arabia, and so the refugees were fleeing as a result of uh, of the invasion. And every war creates refugees. Whenever you see war, you will see the, the civilians that are now departing from that area and, and on the move, the migration that happens be, because of war. And the population patterns that shift and move about because of war and because of persecution. And, uh, and so here they are trying to escape from the battle, and so they are seeking to... Uh, escape out of Arabia, uh, and the people from Tima, they brought water to them. For thus the Lord has said to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail, and the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar will be diminished, for the fear for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. And so here we see the uh, the proclamation now uh, against uh, Arabia. In chapter 22, we see that there is now a proclamation against Jerusalem. And it says, The burden against the valley of vision. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? So the Valley of Vision, Jerusalem is referred to as a mountain, Mount Zion, but here we see the city is called a valley, the Valley of uh, Vision. And there is the Kidron Valley that uh, runs directly between the two hills east of the city. And, and here we see that, that it is called the Valley of Vision now. And, and he says, you know, what ails you now? What has troubled you? so that you have climbed up onto your rooftops. And this is the coming Babylonian invasion that is going to cause the people, as the 
as the troops surround the city, they're going to go up onto their rooftops to be able to look out and to see now the army that is laying siege to them. He says, you who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a, a joyous city, your slain men are not slain with the sword nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. And all who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Jerusalem was filled with people from the surrounding towns as the Babylonian army was approaching. The people in the towns and the villages all around Jerusalem, they fled now to the city. And the gates were locked and, <coughs> and now the people were shut inside. So the Babylonians just laid a siege around the city of Jerusalem. And, and we see that the, the leaders themselves, they, they sought to flee, to save their own lives. And in so doing, they were captured. Second Kings chapter 25 talks about it. it it says that the, the men are slain, but they're not slain with the sword, nor are they dead in battle. The judgment was about the starvation that would take place. As the Babylonians lay siege, the, the incredible starvation that took place there in Jerusalem as, as virtually every morsel of food was was eaten and even all the way down to where people were resorting to cannibalism at the, the end to try and stay alive. And, and here we see that judgment is declared far in advance by Isaiah. No, they are not dead in, in battle, but it was starvation and disease that decimated so many. Verse 4, Therefore I said, Look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. Because the Babylonian advance had caused the destruction now of God's people, we see that Isaiah can't even bear it. He is just lamenting over this vision of the judgment that, that he is going to see. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And it was in Jeremiah's ministry as he was ministering during that time that the Babylonians came and laid siege. And, and then the Babylonians, when they finally did break down the walls and, and enter in, they burned the city and destroyed it in Jerusalem. And, and they took uh, the, the people into captivity and they left uh, only a handful of people back to keep the land populated and, and Jeremiah was left behind. He, he's called the weeping prophet as, as his ministry was there in the midst of the judgment of God by the Babylonians. In verse 5, For it is a day of trouble and treading down in perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and, and Kerr uncovered the shield. And it shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. And so here Isaiah is given a vision of the destruction of the country that he loved, the people that he loved, the city that he loved, the temple where he worshipped. Hard to imagine that their great temple, the temple that had been built by Solomon, <coughs> the splendor and the glory of that temple, and God shows them that it's going to be burned, that it is going to be destroyed, and that the Babylonians are going to come and sweep away his countrymen. The chariots will be at the gates to the uh, city. And we see in verse 8, And he removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the 
house of the forest. He removed the protection of Judah. It is God's hand that protects. It is the protecting, guiding hand of God in your life, in my life. God's protective hand is over nations. One nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. One nation under God. Under what? Under the protection of God's hand. Under his care. But you'll remember that the people there in Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, Israel, the southern kingdom, you remember that they weren't being faithful to God. That they were now engaged in idolatry and worshiping all other gods. And, and so they had departed from the truth. And truth had become a blurry thing then. We know that truth is God's word and, and the revelation of God himself, but now they're bowing down to stone images and to wood carvings and to Asheroth poles, and, and they are burning their children on the altar of Moloch in order to have favor from God in, in their life. And they had moved from truth into post-truth, into a place where now truth gets pushed aside, where truth becomes confused, to where people begin to say, what is truth? And is there such a thing as truth? It's interesting to me that today we have moved the Ten Commandments out of the schools. We have taken prayer out of the schools. We, we now teach in our schools, that there is no such thing as truth. That truth now is relative and it is bendable. We are living in a post-truth period of time. And, and as they began to depart from God, God began to depart from them. And he began to pull his hand of protection back and and he stepped back. The, the Assyrians had come in and taken the ten northern tribes and, and God's hand had been pulled back from them. And, and now from Jerusalem itself, he begins to pull his hand back. And, and God says, are you sure you want me to go? Are you sure you want me to depart? Or will you repent and turn back? They believed that because they had the temple and because they had the Shekinah glory of God, that they could live any way that they wanted. And, and that now became their assurance that God would be with them and that God would be for them. But God says that if you draw close to me, I will what? I will draw close to you. But he is not going to fight anybody in keeping them from departing from him. And as they depart, his hand of protection gets further and further from them. Here we see his hand of protection uh, over Jerusalem itself, over in Judah. Now he removed the protection of Judah. It is a frightful thing when God begins to pull his hand of protection away from our lives our marriages, our families, our communities, our neighborhoods, our cities, our nation. God's hand of protection is what holds us together, keeps us safe, blesses us with his abundance. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest and when Solomon had the palace built, there was this giant hall called the Palace of the Forest, and it had these huge cedar columns that were brought from Lebanon. And, and there they had all of these shields and weapons that were on the walls. He said, you, you trusted in your military strength. You stopped trusting in me. I am your defense. The Bible says that unless... The Lord guards the city, the watchmen watch in vain. 
post all the watchmen that you want unless God is the one that is going to protect you. Seeing the trouble coming <laughs> is not going to keep you safe in the day of trouble. It is the Lord that keeps us safe. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and, and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. <coughs> when the Assyrian army earlier had come and laid siege, and you remember the angel of the Lord comes and destroys 185,000 and soldiers of the Assyrians. And, and so the Assyrian army retreats and departs and God had protected his holy city. Well, here they were now. They had not repented. They had continued to follow after their own desires. And they would also go to temple. They, they would go to the temple. They would offer their sacrifices. But you remember that and God says, I don't desire the blood of sheep and bulls. I desire obedience. You're disobedient to me, and then you bring me a gift. And God says, I won't, I won't receive that gift. But they were going, they were attending, and then living any way that they wanted to live. And so we see that they had taken all of these measures. When the Assyrians had come, they... They dug the walls, I mean the wells. They fortified the walls. They did all of these things here. But the one thing they didn't do is they didn't turn to God. They didn't repent. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts, verse 12, called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for the girding with sackcloth. But instead, joy and gladness slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. God was seeking the heart of his people to return back to him. He was allowing difficult circumstances as a warning now that, that you're headed in the wrong direction. God was allowing this to happen to give them time and to cause them to repent. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, repent, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. God is always willing to restore relationship if we will just turn back to him. If we will just turn our heart around. And then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts. Surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. And so rather than in their calamity and distress turning to God, they turned to the flesh. They did everything but trust in God. Judah would go into captivity and God's word to Isaiah would be fulfilled. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go. Proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here? And who, <coughs> whom have you here? That you have hewn a sepulchre here? And he who hews himself a, a sepulchre on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Now, Shebna here was a high-ranking court official. And and when the Assyrians uh, besieged Jerusalem, he was involved in the negotiations with Sennacherib. And he was given this position as a steward of the palace. And many say that he was second possibly only to the king. Now, in Jerusalem, there is, in the Kidron Valley, there are the, the tombs that have been carved out to the kings and uh, and and all and he had begun to hewn himself uh, out one of these these huge uh, sepulchers and bringing honor to himself here and and we see that that the lord is calling him out on this and 
And he says in verse 17, Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. And there you shall die, and there your glorious and chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. You're never going to end up in that glorious sepulcher that you're beginning to build. The Lord is going to bury you. And so I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. And then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now, we see that Eliakim means whom God appoints. And so uh, here we have this person that was self-appointed, seeking glory for himself. And what is going to happen? He's going to be torn down and cast down. And who is going to be exalted? The one who God appoints. And here we have a picture of, the, of Satan and of the Lord. And how Satan is the one who exalted himself and wanted the worship of the world and the glory of the world to belong to him. But what is ultimately going to happen? He is going to be cast out. And who is going to be exalted? Jesus Christ, the one whom God appoints here. And, and so, verse 21, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And so Eliakim becomes a foreshadowing of the Messiah. In verse 22, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. And I will fasten him as a peg, in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. And Isaiah has already told us concerning the Christ that the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And so here we see the foreshadowing of, uh, of Christ himself. In verse 24, they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. And so here we have Christ, a picture of Christ with his bride. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And this peg is Jesus Christ, and it will be set and it will be secured, but then it will be removed. It will be cut down. And so this is a reference now to the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Isaiah continues to give us pictures of the portrait of Christ, continues to give us the, the typologies that, <coughs> that ultimately he is the one that will be magnified and and glorified and it is amazing as as the messiah is the hope of israel he is the hope of the world and he is the hope of every single believer and you will remember when jesus gathered together with his disciples in that final meal before that peg was cut down before christ himself laid himself down how how he gathered them together and he instituted communion. Communion is the act of the body coming together to recognize the love that God has for us. That no matter what condition you came in tonight, God wants you to stop for just a minute and he wants to fill you up with the fact that you are loved, that you are wanted, that he cares for you and that he paid the ultimate price to demonstrate to you that you are loved so that you can live like you're loved, to be able to live a life knowing that at your very soul, God loves you. Every single aspect, every single part of you. And, and sometimes I think that we as believers can struggle with, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. But here God says, 
you're mine and you're priceless. And it's not about performance, it's about position. It's about relationship. You, you are now adopted into my family. You are my child and, and your sins that we can get so hung up on. Guess what? I've washed them away. As far as the east is from the west, they're, they're never going to be remembered any longer. So can you stop bringing them up? <laughs> can you move on past your sins? Can you leave the past in the past? Paul would write, there is therefore now no what? No condemnation. Condemnation for the mistakes that you've made, for the sins that you have committed, for, uh, for the mistakes uh, in the paths and the choices that, that you have made. He says, I've washed that away. I've cleansed that. You got the most important thing right. You accepted my son. You're in. Come here. I love you. I love you. That's the single most important thing. And he wants you to know that you're loved. And he wants you to know that you're forgiven. And he wants you to stop and say law on it. And let it impact you. And though things may not be perfect in your life, the one who is perfect loves you and he's in your life. <laughs> and communion is that time when we stop and allow God's love to just just wash over us just waves of love as he just loves on you tells you how much he loves you tells you how much he cares about you and the greatest demonstration we see that that there are so many times in the old testament where where the prophets act out the message of god well god acted out the message of love in sending his son no greater love has a man than this. They would willingly lay down his life to save you. And that's what Jesus did. And so communion is about stopping and pausing and recognizing that you are loved. You have been loved and you will always be loved by God. At this time, I want to invite the ushers to come and to distribute the, the elements and and I want us to just spend time just allowing the reality of that truth that you wouldn't allow the enemy to steal any of your joy, that you wouldn't allow your own thoughts about yourself and, and the mistakes and the imperfections that, <coughs> that we have in our lives and, and that we make, but that all of that is going to be washed away it is going to be cleansed redeemed restored every wound healed every scar removed and we will spend eternity basking in the glory of of his love in the glory of his life so let's go ahead and turn the house lights down and and as we pass out the elements Let's just reflect and spend time before the Lord.
And so Jesus was gathered together with them. He takes a loaf of bread. It was representative of his own body. Shortly thereafter, he would go into the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that his body would be broken, that he would be arrested, betrayed, scourged, crucified, knowing that he wasn't just going to die, but that he was going to submit himself to the most excruciating death that had been conceived of at that time. Crucifixion. To demonstrate that he would bear it all, that he would take it all, that, that he wouldn't even take the easiest death, he would take the worst death possible, willingly. to show you how much he loves you. And he holds that bread and he breaks that bread. And I have to imagine what, what Jesus was feeling when he took that bread and he broke it. And then he gave it to all of them. Matthew records for us that Jesus took bread, blessed, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's partake of the broken body of our Lord. Jesus knows that he is going to be crucified. He knows that he is going to go into the grave. He will conquer death. He will conquer the grave. He will rise again. And he will depart. He will send the Holy Spirit. But he's going to come back and get his bride. And he's going to take his bride and he's going to bring his bride to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he says, the next time that I drink this cup, I'll drink it new with you in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bread, the broken body, the cup, <laughs> the promise of when we will drink that cup again with him in heaven. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's look forward to that glorious promise and partake of the cup.
Father, you are so good, so wonderful. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If we had all eternity to thank you, it wouldn't be long enough. But thank you for rescuing, saving, washing, cleansing, establishing, Filling, strengthening, guiding, protecting. <laughs> Thank you for loving us. And help us now to love you in return. Help us to be faithful. Help us to draw near to you. Help us to let your love sink fully into our soul. May we soak in your love. Thank you for instituting communion, telling us to stop, gather together, look up, and look forward to that day when we will drink that cup anew with you, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.